community you guys have. I love how you love each other. Um, if you don't know, I've been here a few times, but my name is Josh Harrison. I'm a pastor. Hello, hello. Great to see you. I'm a pastor at a church called Canopy uh, that meets nearby here in Costa Mesa. Uh, in fact, nearby by, I mean right here, right here in this building tonight, um, our church will be meeting. We are so grateful. I want to just continue to say this every time I get a chance. Uh, our church is so grateful for the generosity of your church, for the way you've opened up your doors to us, opened up your hearts, uh, friendship with, with Eric and his family and all of you is, is so meaningful to all of us. We're very, very grateful. We, um, we had a chance, I think it was last week, uh, we had a worship night over in the family room across, across the way, that way. Um, and uh, yeah, we, we were standing there and every time we have this worship night, we, we take some time just to pray uh, about what God's up to in our world. And we were standing there kind of looking at the room and we saw this amazing timeline of, of the Lighthouse story and just felt led to pray for all of you. And I just wanted to tell you um, that you have a church uh, family that's sort of extended family that prays for you on a regular basis. Um, and we are grateful. Yeah, no, no, no. We're grateful uh, for this community and blessed by what God is doing here and just want to continue to bless what God is doing here. There's good stuff happening. Um, so you're in a series on the book of Acts. Is that, I got that right. Is that right? All right, good. So otherwise this was going to be a really, really awkward morning. But uh, Acts, I love the book of Acts. One of my favorite books. Um, and I would say that about another, you know, 65 of them or so. But, but one of my favorite books in the Bible um, for a, a variety of reasons. But one thing I love about it is it gives us a picture of what we're doing here. So we get to see the sort of the earliest stages of the church. Um, and not try to recreate it, because this isn't first century Jerusalem. But ask the question, what did this church believe about themselves and about God that caused them to live the way they did? Because I think we can all say with a fair degree of certainty that this church had an impact on the world, right? This was sort of a world-changing church. As a matter of fact, we're here today because of the stuff that we're reading about. Um, so if that happened for them, based on their core convictions and the presence of God in their lives, then I want to know how that can happen for me. I want to know how that can happen for my church. And I'm assuming that you're in the book of Acts because you want to know how that can happen for your church. So we ask this question, what did they believe about themselves that caused them to enter into the world in this redemptive and powerful way. And, and I, my, my favorite verse, hands down, in the book of Acts is Acts chapter 1, verse 1, which is a funny one because it's an introductory verse. It simply says this, In my former book, this is a guy named Luke writing, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach until the time he ascended to heaven. Which is kind of a funny verse to say is your favorite verse. It's the one that we sort of gloss over to get to the good stuff. Uh, but really, listen to what it says. In my former book, he's talking about uh, the Gospel of Luke. You see, the guy who wrote Acts, as I'm sure you've uh, heard, wrote two books. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. And they go together as kind of one seamless story. This is my former book, the Gospel of Luke. I wrote about everything that Jesus began to do and teach. Which implies what? That in this second book, I'm writing about everything that Jesus continues to do and teach. What's remarkable about that, if you read the story, is about you know, 10 or 12 verses into the story, Jesus just lifts off the ground and ascends into heaven. And then you have still 28 chapters of content that, according to Luke, is Jesus doing and teaching despite the fact that he's no longer physically present on earth. What does that mean? That means that the disciples and the, the apostles, the early church, saw themselves as the literal body of Christ at work in the world. That's how they saw themselves. You ask, what did the church believe about themselves? They believed, and we use this metaphorically all the time, but they believed literally that they were the hands and feet of Jesus at work in the world. 
that they had been called to incarnate, to, to embody Jesus, that when people looked at them, they should see in the most tangible and real of ways Jesus of Nazareth. And what I also love is that they, of course, Jesus didn't leave them to do this on their own. By Acts chapter 2, we see that he sends his spirit to empower them to do it. This book is often called The Acts of the Apostles. It's not the greatest name for the book, is it? It should be titled The Acts of the Holy Spirit through the church in the world, right? The, the acts of the Holy Spirit. This is a story of Jesus at work by his spirit in a group of people. He's using his spirit. He's sending his spirit to empower a group of people to embody him in the world. It's what they believed about themselves. I love that. Do we believe that about ourselves? That that is our primary purpose here, is to incarnate Jesus. That's what it means to be the church, not just in this building on a Sunday, but everywhere we go, that we are a community of Jesus' people, embodying him in such a way that when people see us, they see him. Do we believe that? Do we believe what Paul says in Galatians? I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but Jesus Christ lives in me. Right? That that is now the purpose of our lives. Because the reality is the last thing I love about the book of Acts, or one of the other things I love about the book of Acts, is that it's not over. Right? It's 28 chapters long, and it just sort of stops in the middle of a story. Why? Well, because it's not done. We are living the continuation of the story of Acts. Everything that the Holy Spirit did in them, He is willing to do in us. Let me say that again. That's a big statement. Everything that the Holy Spirit did in the book of Acts, He is willing to do in us. Are we willing to receive that? Do we want to see that? Do we want to see the power of God at work in our lives and through our lives in the communities around us, in the nations of the earth? Do we want to see it? It's possible. We are living this story. This is our story. So that said, I want to read to you a section of our story. Um, the story I'm, I get to tell you today shows that it's not always sunshine and rainbows. When the kingdom of God advances, sometimes there is resistance. So we pick up the story of Acts. I think you, uh, last weekend you talked about this amazing moment where Peter and John have an interaction with a, a man who's been uh, crippled, been lame his entire life, and they, they heal him. You guys, that was last week's story. So we pick up right after that. If you remember, uh, there's this man who's laying uh, by, by a gate near the temple. He's been begging there for years and years and years, and he begs the right people for money. Well, the wrong people from one perspective. Do you have money? Peter has this famous line, right? He says, silver and gold have I not. This is the old King James. The reason I know this verse is because when I was a little kid, we had this song in church that we sang, silver and gold have I not, but such as I have give I thee. In other words, in real language that we talk like today, I don't have any money, but what I have I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Anybody remember that song? And he went walking and leaped, right? Okay, anyway, that's all the singing I'm going to give you. So then, of course, he does. He gets up and he starts jumping around the temple, which creates quite a scene um, and gives Peter and John a platform, an opportunity to share uh, what has just happened. I love this story. I love this story because if you know this story, there's another cool story I didn't intend to tell, but there's a man named Thomas Aquinas who's a, a great church father. You know this story, Brian? You're laughing because you know this story. The great church father who um, was once being given a tour of the, the Pope's estates and sort of the church's estates in, in Rome, in the Vatican. He's walking around and, and he's being shown all this wealth that the church has accumulated over time. 
Um, and he sees all of the, the vast storehouses of gold and the artwork that's been accumulated in the stables and the pastures. And the man who's giving the tour sort of uh, arrogantly and in pride said, as you can see, we can no longer say silver and gold have I not. And Thomas Aquinas, sharp as a whip, says, neither can you say rise up and walk. And that sets the stage for our story today. We'll come back to that. <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. And so they seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas was there, the high priest... So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power? Of what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they decided to let them go. They couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was healed was over 40 years old, which I have discovered is not all that old. <laughs> Amen. All right, where to start? Um, let's start with verse 1. It talks about, we're just going to walk our way through this story. I'm a big believer in the Bible's a story. And we should read it like a story. We shouldn't read it like something that happened in Narnia, but something that happened in real life to real people. And, and we put ourselves in the story. So let's put ourselves in the story. It's helpful to do that by finding out a little bit about the main characters. The main characters in this story, Peter and John, we'll assume we've got some context for who these two guys are. Um, but the other main characters are these people we call Sadducees. Now, when we read that, as American Christians, we tend to have this kind of caricature in our minds. Whenever we hear the word Sadducees, we say Pharisees and Sadducees in our minds, and what we think are these are just sort of, um, just sort of grumpy people. You know, they're these stereotype. You know, if you remember back in Sunday school, you've got the flannel graph. They're these guys standing with their arms crossed. They wear long robes. They got long white beards, and they're just grumpy all the time. 
And basically, they're just trying to oppose the work of Jesus at every turn. What we don't realize is that these are real people. The Pharisees, who we hear a lot more about in the Gospels, and the Sadducees are um, significant characters in the story of first century Palestine, of, of, of what we call, you know, sort of Judea, Samaria, uh, Galilee at the time. So uh, these are, let's, let's, this is not a perfect equivalent, but let's call these guys political parties, okay? Uh, and they're not the only ones. There are other sects in Judaism. Uh, there's a group uh, called the Essenes that maybe you've heard a little bit about, that maybe John the Baptist was an Essene. Um, there's another group that are called the Zealots. There's a group called the Herodians. There are all these different sort of political parties that, that interacted with the world in a different way. We hear a ton about the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the ruling party in the Galilee. So Jesus, if you read the Gospels, most of Jesus' ministry before he goes to the cross happens in the Galilee. That's why we hear so much about the Pharisees. He's interacting with this group of people who were pretty famous for a couple of things. One of them was a real strict legalism. So they read the law very, very carefully and then applied a very strict understanding of what that looks like on a daily basis. We don't hear as much about the Sadducees uh, because the Sadducees ruled in Jerusalem and only the last chunk of the Gospels, except the Gospel of John where he bounces back and forth, but only the last chunk of the Gospels happens in Jerusalem. So Jesus interacts with them uh, just a little bit. But we know three things about them from the Gospels and from those, this guy, this historian by the name of Josephus. Uh, he writes a little bit about the Sadducees. We know three things. One, they were the ruling class, the Judean ruling class in Jerusalem. So these were sort of the social elite, the, the highest of the high in Jerusalem. They uh, were sort of a combination of political party, social club, and religious leaders. The high priests, uh, because they were the ruling class in Jerusalem, that meant they also controlled the temple. So the high priests were generally members of the Sadducee party. Both, uh, two of them are listed here. The former high priest, a guy named Annas, and then his son, a guy named Caiaphas. Um, and and these, are, these are Sadducees um, that, that essentially had the responsibility of maintaining the temple and keeping religious life in Jerusalem. Now what's significant about this, I, know, I promise this is going somewhere. I promise. So just bear with me. Some of you really like history and you're geeking out right now and the rest of you are falling asleep, but I promise this will go somewhere. Um, okay. So what, what's important to remember is that Palestine, ancient Palestine, was a Roman province at this time. So it had been conquered by the Romans. It was under control of the Roman Empire, which is interesting. So when I say that the, the Sadducees were the ruling party in Jerusalem, well, they were the ruling party underneath an imperial government. Okay, so we have the Roman Empire. Now, the Romans were smart. They didn't come in and just sort of try to take over everything. They didn't kick out all of the old government and sort of put their own people in power. They did that in strategic positions, but they also allowed the people they ruled enough freedom, enough autonomy, so that they wouldn't be revolting all the time. So the Sadducees had this interesting situation where they were tasked with ruling the people of God, ruling this sort of religious group under the influence and the power of the Roman government which means they were constantly having to navigate the relationship between the two, all right? They have this holy scripture that they believed in, that they thought formed the instructions for how they should do life, who they were as people, but they also had the practical realities of navigating life in an empire. And they had to figure out, they walked a delicate dance between the two. And what the Sadducees ultimately did is they made deals, <laughs> They made deals with the Roman government to appease them so that they could continue to have a semblance of control over the life of the people, right? And, and the Sadducees were sort of famous for this. They were famous for, in the eyes of the purists, in the eyes of the pure Jews, they were famous for corruption. 
Remember when Jesus goes into the temple, he sees a whole bunch of people selling stuff. This was under the control of the Sadducees. They had so begun to conspire with the Roman government that they started to reflect not the values of the word of God anymore, but instead the values of the empire. And Jesus comes in and flips over tables. Jesus is representing this, no, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. But you have to understand, it was a difficult situation for them to be in. Because if they went after this 100%, if they went after what the Word of God said 100%, it would put them at odds often with the Roman government, and they were afraid that the Roman government would sweep in and do what they do, which is crush any opposition. Incidentally, we don't have this represented in the Bible, but if you fast forward to the year 70 AD, that in fact did happen. People got out of control, the Roman government swept in, destroyed the temple, and as far as we know it, the Sadducees never existed after that moment. So their fears were very real. That if they didn't appease the Romans, if they didn't collaborate with them, that they would lose power, they would lose control, and the, and the, worst, could, the worst could happen. So that's one thing we know about them. Second thing we know about them, uh, in the Bible it says they denied the resurrection. This is a big one. In other words, uh, for the Sadducees, there was no resurrection from the dead. There was sort of no um, hope of the restoration of creation. Instead, they put most of their hope in the moment, in the present reality. So when, when the Bible talked about the kingdom of God, they didn't see that as in any way a future reality that would be realized. They saw it as something that would happen via all the normal political kind of uh, influences of the day. So this is going to be a very, a very natural, very real, very present thing, which um, we'll talk about in just a second. The third thing we know about the Sadducees is that they presided over the execution of Jesus of Nazareth. So they made up the Sanhedrin, and they presided over the execution of Jesus, which is why we turn them into stereotypes, we turn them into villains, because they're the bad guys in the story. And we're, we've all been raised on sort of a comic book mentality where there's like a really good guy and a really bad guy, and we don't ever empathize with their situation. Why do you suppose they sent Jesus to the cross? Is it because they were just bad, grumpy people? No, it's because he was a, a very real threat. Not just to their power, but from their perspective, to the safety of their entire nation. He came in, essentially declaring himself to be the Messiah. Which, incidentally, would have been okay with them if he had done the stuff a Messiah was supposed to do. If he'd come in, you know, swinging a sword with a whole army at his back, they probably would have gotten on board. They may even have been excited when he came marching in on the back of a donkey because that's a messianic prophecy. Maybe they were starting to get the feeling that something good might be happening here. But what's the first thing that Jesus did when he came riding into town on a donkey? Did he go after the Romans? No. He goes to the temple and starts flipping tables. He goes after them. And immediately they're saying, oh no, this is not the guy. And if we follow this guy and, and what he's preaching and what he's after... The Romans are going to sweep in because he is declaring himself to be a king. The people are declaring himself to be a king, but he's not going to be the kind of king that we want. He's not going to be strong enough to protect us from the Romans. We have to do something about it. We have to do something about it. So they felt they had no choice to preserve the safety and security of their people, their way of life to maintain control. They felt they had no choice but to send Jesus to the cross. That makes sense? This is the Sadducees. This is the people that we're interacting with. Now, we're going to come back to that. I promise that will, that will mean something in just a second. But the story from here. They're frustrated that Peter and John have had this tremendous impact in their temple. They've healed this guy, um, and that they've healed him in the name of Jesus. Out after uh, the healing, they, they, they preach this message talking about the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of, of, of the general resurrection of the whole earth, and uh, they just don't love it, you know? 
This is something that they opposed theologically. This is a person that they had put on the cross. Um, and lots of people are believing. What's remarkable about this is it says that there were 5,000 people, 5,000 men, we don't know about women and children, 5,000 men after that day that were considered believers, followers of Jesus, added to the church. Prior to that day, there were 3,000. So we can do the math and say about 2,000 in the temple that day heard the message. I just think that's remarkable. It shouldn't be glossed over. 2,000 people. Um, and again, those people are our ancestors. We're here today because of those 2,000 people going out and telling their stories and passing down faith from generation to generation. And that just gets me excited about what's possible. When you look at this room and think, man, if we could have that kind of an encounter and go out in that way, what's possible? Who might somewhere down the road be telling stories of Lighthouse Community Church and the impact that it's had on us? Who's already telling those stories? So anyway, 2,000 people moving through the story. The Sadducees ask this question in verse 7. Really, really uh, fascinating question. They say, by whose power did you do this? Now, if I were legal counsel for the Sadducees, I would have advised them on a different strategy. Right? They have sort of two things that they can go after. They have one, the miracle itself, or two, they have the, the sermon afterwards. I would have counseled them to go after the sermon afterwards and to deny or ignore the miracle entirely. Because you see what they've done from the very beginning, and, and they couldn't really help it. I mean, this guy is literally bouncing around the temple. But what they've done is they've just acknowledged that something remarkable has happened. You don't want to do that. You don't want to camp out on the fact, okay, we have no framework for what's just happened here, so explain to us. They immediately put themselves in a bad position from an argumentative perspective. My kids know. My kids know that the best way to get yourself out of trouble is to vehemently deny the obvious. That's the counsel. That's the counsel I would have given the Sadducees. Vehemently deny the obvious and you might get out of this one. But they didn't. They said, by whose power did you do this? I love what the next verse says. It says, Peter, comma, filled with the Holy Spirit, begins to speak. You've got to love Peter in this. He, I mean, man, if you read the Gospels, I mean, you know you're supposed to like Peter, but he's a... He's an interesting character, isn't he? I mean, he's always running off at the mouth. He is perfected in the Gospels. He has perfected the art of missing the point. Like, just, just in a way that just inspires me. I mean, I, 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 I have followed in Peter's footsteps so many times in that very art. Um, and then, of course, you get to the end of the Gospels, and Peter has this low, low moment where he's standing, not, probably not too far from where he was standing on that day. And somebody asks him, as Jesus is being tried, somebody asks him, aren't you? Aren't you with him? You're, you're a Galilean. I, th I swear I saw you with the guy. And Peter, three times, denies it, denies it, denies it. Why? Denies even knowing Jesus, this man who had loved him so dearly, who just the, the same night had washed his feet, who he had sworn to follow to the ends of the earth. He denies ever knowing him. Why? Because he was terrified. Because Jesus was about to be executed and Peter thought that the same might happen to him if he crossed the Sadducees. And now, not a couple months removed from that, here he is crossing the Sadducees. You gotta love it. What changed in Peter? Holy Spirit. That's the difference. That Peter that denied Jesus, no comprehension of what it meant to be filled by the Spirit of God. This Peter, full of the Spirit, stands up and with all the guts in the world, challenges the most powerful people of his day. Gotta love it. Because I said at the beginning of this that everything that was true of them is true of us in Jesus. 
And one thing we see here is that the Holy Spirit makes evangelists out of doubters. Got any people who ever doubt or question faith in the room? I'm raising my hand. That does not disqualify you. If you are full of the Spirit, He can meet you in that place of doubt and in some way that we can't begin to understand, transform that doubt into a powerful testimony to the world. The Holy Spirit makes prophets out of deniers. I love that. Peter's a prophet here. He is a fire-breathing prophet with truth in his belly that cannot be held back. All because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit, my friends, lives in this place. This is possible for us. So Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, goes and he begins his defense. And it's really, really simple. He says, wait, 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 wait. Let me get this straight. You're not upset about what we said. You're upset because we healed somebody who was lame. Just, just want to be clear. You're mad because we did something nice. Something good. That, like, that's what you're upset about. Okay, okay. It, it's at this point, if you're a Sadducee, that you think, oh shoot, this is not going well. This is not going to end well for us. But Peter goes on. He says, okay, if that's the case, if you must know, the answer to your question is Jesus. The answer to your question is Jesus. By whose power did you do this? He says boldly in front of them, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead. Peter's saying some pretty powerful stuff here in this one sentence. He's saying, first of all, Jesus is the one who did this, which means, of course, what? That Jesus is alive. (laughs) They wouldn't have liked this very much. Everybody there had seen him hung on a cross, and the rumors had begun to spread through Jerusalem that he was alive, and here is a man standing up and saying, I can prove that he's alive, because you see that guy hopping around the temple. I picture in my mind he's still hopping around the temple the next day. You guys see the same thing, right? I mean, if you've been laying on a mat for 40 years, you're going to do a lot of hopping. (laughs) Hopping around. You see this guy. This is proof that Jesus is alive, and if he's alive, what's significant? Well, everything he said about himself is true. You see, the resurrection vindicates the message of Jesus. If he said all the stuff he said and ended up on a cross and then stayed in a grave, the guy was just nuts. But if he said everything he said, went to a cross, went into a grave, and then came out again, then you have to say, oh, wait a minute. (laughs) Maybe there's some truth to what he was saying. The resurrection vindicates Jesus. And so that's why Peter says, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the King that you were waiting for, that's whose power we did it in, this risen King. And by the way, if everything he said about himself is true, you made a big mistake. Jesus, whom you, Jesus, the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, gut punch right there. Because these were the people who were supposed to be doing the work of God. They were high priests in God's temple. They were the people responsible for leading the entire nation, shepherding them into the presence of God, leading them forward. They were to be the ones whose eyes were peeled, looking for the ways God was at work and following where he led. They were the ones that had the responsibility for reminding God's people who he was. And Peter here, this fisherman, stands in front of him and says, you missed him. 
it's possible to claim the name of God and still miss the work of God. And you've done it. You've done it. But it's not over there because Peter goes on to say what? He said, salvation is found in no other name. It's this great verse where he basically lays out the path to salvation. In other words, he's not just calling them to the carpet. He's not just challenging them. He's also offering them a new way forward. I love that. This is the second time now Peter stood in front of a big crowd and said, you crucified Jesus. But he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave it there and say, I'm mad at you because you crucified Jesus. He says, no, repentance is available to you. Salvation is available to you today. If you put your faith, your trust in him, salvation is possible for you, even you Sadducees. But there's another side to this. He's saying salvation comes in no other name. In other words, it's not going to come from over here. You're not going to find it through collaboration with the Romans. You're not going to find what you want by conducting yourselves in the ways of the empire. You have to turn around. You have to head a different direction with your life. You have to follow him in the way he's doing things. This king that you crucified because he wasn't the way you wanted him to be, maybe what you wanted was wrong, not him. Maybe the way you think the world operates is what's wrong, not the way he envisions the world could be. If you want salvation, you don't find it here. You don't find it with the Romans. You don't find it via control. You don't find it in the empire. You find it by surrendering yourself to him. No other name. No other name. And this would, this would be such a central idea to the Christian church moving forward. There's no other name. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is. The empire does not dictate our lives. The king and kingdom do. Peter's trying to get them to understand this. But they continued to miss it. I love what happens next because, you know, it's, it's Peter standing in front of this, like, who's who of Jewish society? There's a reason, by the way, that Luke gives us all these names. You know, he names off, you know, four or five different people. For us, it's just sort of, you know, it's, again, it's just the stuff we skip over. But if you're reading in the first century, you would kind of gasp here. Because this is Peter standing before the Supreme Court. I mean, these were the movers and shakers in Jewish society. And keep in mind, there were synagogues around the Mediterranean, around the known world, around the empire. So everybody who's reading Luke's letters, especially every Jewish reader, would know who he was talking about. That Peter is standing in front of the high priest Caiaphas. And he just flattens him entirely. And, and they're shocked. They take a step back and they says. They, they were amazed because they looked at him and they were uneducated, unschooled men. He shouldn't have been able to do this. He's teaching the rabbis. But notice what it says, and we all love this verse. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. In other words, here they are in this debate, this argument with these two Galilean fishermen. And they just start to realize, man, this feels familiar. Where have we experienced this before? Where have we experienced just being absolutely destroyed by a Galilean fisherman? Ah, these are Jesus' people. I love that. I love it. They hated it. <laughs> um, 
They noticed the power and authority and courage that comes from the Holy Spirit. And they didn't like it. So their solution to the problem, really simple. Hey, all right, we're going to let you off the hook this time. Again, remember, guy bouncing around the kind of court, courtyard. We're going to let you off the hook this time. Just don't ever do it again. <laughs> Peter and John's response. All due respect, Supreme Court. <laughs> who are we going to go with, you or God, on this one? And I love, I love their rationale. It's true. What are we supposed to do? He rose from the dead. I, you know what? I don't want to be standing here any more than you do. Honestly, do you think that I wanted to get arrested last night? I'm paraphrasing, of course. Do you think that we wanted to get arrested and spend the night in prison last night? Do you think that this is not scary for us, that standing in front of all of you, do you think that we're not daunted by the mission that we have, that we've been given to take the gospel to all the nations? Do you think that that doesn't terrify us? But we have no choice because it's true. It's true. He rose from the dead and we're witnesses. It is what it is. If it's true, my friends, it changes everything. It takes all of our other plans for our lives and it just flattens them. Because now we have a new task. We're witnesses. That's who we are. So that's the story. Three quick observations on the story, okay? Observation number one. You ready for this? We are saved and empowered to incarnate Jesus in the world. That's why he has saved us. That's why he's given us his spirit, not for our personal enjoyment, although we will deeply enjoy relationship with him along the way. His name is like honey, sweeter than anything else. Spirit like water to our soul, but that water is not simply for us. It's not so we can enjoy it and never thirst again. It's so that, in the words of Jesus, out of us will spring rivers of living water. That's why he's given it to us. He's given us his spirit so we can incarnate him to the ends of the earth so that when people look at us, they will see him. That's true of us. That's possible by the Holy Spirit. You know that this word Christian that so many of us identify with, we say, I am Christian, was first not spoken by the church about themselves but by the world about the church? I think it's in Acts chapter 8 in Antioch. Maybe it's a little bit later, Acts chapter 10. It says the church, the disciples were first called Christians. Hear that? Were called Christians in Antioch. In other words, people looked at them and said, just like the Sanhedrin here, oh, those are those Jesus people. Man, I want that to be true of me. I want somebody without knowing anything else about me to see me and say, that guy's a Jesus person problem, of course, is now in our day and age, we have begun to identify ourselves by the name of Christian, and then we do all sorts of weird things with that. You know what I've discovered? The world still loves Jesus. You guys notice this? Walk through your grocery stores and pay attention to Time and Newsweek magazines, and you'll find over the course of a year, no less than three or four articles in each about Jesus. The world is obsessed People read what he has to say, and they're still floored, whether they believe or not. You might have heard of a guy named Gandhi. Gandhi once famously said, I love Jesus. It's his followers I can't stand. Wow. I don't think he said it quite like that. I'm, I'm, I'm a master at the art of paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. I don't think we have that option. I think the Gospels give us two options. 
People either hate us because they hated Jesus or they love us because they love Jesus. They can't love Jesus and hate us. If there's, a, if there's a split there, we're doing something wrong. You see? The church is often crying persecution. You know, we quote, uh, you'll be persecuted for my name's sake. But sometimes I think the persecution we experience is just because we're being idiots. I'm speaking to myself here, my friends. Because I'm not embodying Jesus in the way that I should. Now, if I embody Jesus well and somebody hates me for it, great. But if they hate me because I'm just being a jerk in the name of Jesus, that's not okay. I want them to see him when they look at me and be forced to respond to him. I want that to be true of us. We exist to incarnate Jesus. That's observation number one. Observation number two is it's entirely possible that we Christians can behave like Sadducees. I had a professor in, uh, in college. Am I, am I okay on time? I'm watching this clock tick up. I'm sorry, guys. I'm, I'm on a bit of a rant here. Thank you. I'll take that. Everybody else is saying, I'm not sure I agree with that man in the front, but I'm going to agree with him. So here we go. Um, I had a professor in college who said the way to read the Bible, to really understand the Bible, is to put yourself in the shoes of the bad guys in the story. See, I often read this story, and I am, I'm Peter or John. Anybody else? Yeah, no, 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 I'm the Sadducee. I mean, think about it. Somebody who collaborates with the empire. Well, that's me. I was raised in this world under a certain philosophy of how you're supposed to live your life. And I believe in Jesus. But at the same time, I just want to... There's stuff that, that, that doesn't belong with Jesus. You know what I mean? There's, there's the spiritual stuff. Jesus is great for church. But then there's my finances, you know? Or then there's my politics. Ooh. Or then there's the way I engage in relationship with my spouse. Or then there's the way I parent my kids. Or then there's the way, this one kills me. Then there's the way I drive. Jesus, you stay in church, but stay out of my car. <laughs> I am never less like Jesus than when I'm behind the wheel of a car. You know, I... This is a tough one, but I heard a pastor recently, um, a well-known pastor talking about politics, faith and politics, and somebody asked him how his faith influences politics. And he said, oh, he started listing off all these different issues, all these things he believed, you know, sort of going down the political ballot and checking off all the Christian things to say. And they said, no, 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 I mean, how does your faith influence your voting? That's what I mean. Like, how do you, when you read the words of Jesus in the Gospels, how does that influence the way you vote? And he said, not at all. He said, the last thing I want is a president who embodies the Sermon on the Mount. And I thought, that's really interesting, isn't it? What was he saying? Jesus is great for church, not great for ruling the nation. And I understand what he was saying. Because you start to go to all the practical realities of all the things we have to protect and, and the ways we have to be strong. And this guy got crucified on a cross, and what's the deal with all this? But I wanted to yell at the screen, like, at Christmas we sing, you rule the nations. We say you're the Lord of all the earth. I think Jesus knows what he's talking about. I think if we apply his words, they will result in life. Maybe not easy, but they'll result in life. But then I was convicted in my own heart of my finances and the way I think about finances. Jesus, stay out of it. I got this. Or the way I think about my marriage or all this sort of stuff. And I realize I do the same thing. We, we sort of split our lives into spiritual and physical. And Jesus is good for this one, but not great for this one. Jesus, you handle this. You get me to heaven when I die, and I'll handle this. 
We're like the Sadducees. We have no real uh, view of the resurrection. The resurrection means that Jesus endows our spiritual life with his, or our physical lives with his supernatural power. You see that? That the Spirit comes to bring us to life here and now. And that that should affect everything else. The confession of faith for the early church was Jesus is Lord. Not only Savior, but Savior and Lord. In other words, he gets to say everything he wants about anything he wants in my life. And I should live differently in every sphere of life because I'm a follower of Jesus. I have realized for myself that in so many ways, I have collaborated with the empire. I live my life on the value system of this world far too often instead of allowing the values of the kingdom as countercultural and difficult and sacrificial as they might be to influence the way I live my life here. And when I do that, I miss God. My friends, do you want to see the power of God in your life, in your church, in the world? Then spend more time and energy and attention on him than you do on politics, on finances, on career, on relationships, on anything else. Invest your energy into following him, and you will. You will see him move. But if we continue, and I'm not saying this to you, I'm saying it to me, if we continue to collaborate with the empire, we'll miss him. We have an opportunity here and now for a church to arise that once again incarnates Jesus and reflects him to a world that desperately needs to see what he's like. And that's the last thought, last one real quick. It's not too late for me. Peter's words stand out to me today with just crystal clarity. Salvation is still available in his name. In other words, if you're headed that direction in any area of your life, turn around. That's Jesus' first message in the the Gospel of Mark. He walks onto the scene. He says, the kingdom of heaven is available to you. Repent and believe the good news. Repent doesn't mean feel sorry. It means turn around. It means you're heading the wrong direction. But I've come to show you another way. Jesus is available to us now. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, I pray that there would be life in this message. I know that there are some hard things that were said. I know because I feel it in my own soul, but I pray, God, in the middle of that hard stuff, that if there's some of us who are feeling a conviction, that there'd also be a real fresh wind blowing on their faces. That freedom is available. That the power of God is available that salvation is still found in your name, Jesus. And you stand here before us in your Holy Spirit, ready and willing to offer it here and now. So Holy Spirit, I pray you'd blow through this place. Bring hope and bring freedom. 
can keep your heads bowed for just a second. Um, I'd love to take some time to pray over anybody who would like to receive prayer this morning in any of those areas. Now, if as I, I started to point out these places, and the words I used were these places of collaboration with the empire. What I mean by that, I hope I explained it okay, but it's simply places where we find ourselves living the value system of the world rather than the value system of the kingdom of God. And like I said, I'm, I'm not standing up here from a place of perfection, but a place of humility saying, I see that in my own life. And I think we can all, if we're honest, identify places like that in our lives. And I don't say that to shame. If you're feeling shame, I want you to know that's not the Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But I do say it to say it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus has come to offer you resurrection life in that specific area. And it can be yours today, my friends. You can step into it today. So if the Holy Spirit's putting his finger on something and you want to pray about it, we're going to ask you to do something really bold in just a second. Could I have everybody stand in the room?